Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. Steve, welcome back. We are continuing to record the second half of March of 1965. So we covered the first half, which had four pretty good books. Even the Human Torch story was pretty good. It was shocking. Can we keep up the quality for the second half of the month with these remaining four books? Yeah, we've got some good books coming up. They're maybe not as good as those first four books, but we've got we've got four pretty good books coming up. Let's go ahead. And jump into it. Are you doing Tales of Suspense here? I think I'm doing Tales of Suspense. We definitely have some high points in this second half of the month here, but um, I will not say that this Iron Man story is one of them. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Well, let me be very clear. This is a truly terrible, by far the weakest story this month is the Iron Man story we are about to do. It is. So we, I I read these books, you know, like this podcast. I got to say, America listening out there. I put a lot of work into this podcast, as does Steve. And, you know, so we have to read the books. We have to read all eight books. Then we have to take notes on all eight books. And then we have to record talking about all eight books for three hours. And then we have to spend many hours editing it. And And are you grateful? No, you're not. (laughs) I work and slave over this thing. And I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, no, that's, uh, I don't know what came over me. Go on. (laughs) And I, so in this case, I read the comics and then I went back to take my notes later and I'm like, also, somewhere lurks the Phantoms during the power of Iron Man. Did I read that? <laughs> and I was going through taking notes going like, I do not remember this comic at all. I read it last week and I, I, the Phantom, who the hell is the Phantom? And I had to reread this comic when I took notes on it and it had entirely slipped my mind. This is, I'm going to, I'm going to go maybe go out on a limb and say this is the most forgettable Iron Man villain ever. Is the Phantom and the most forgotten Iron Man villain ever is the Phantom. I'm sorry, who were you talking about? Wait, wait, what was I just saying? Wait, <laughs> where am I? What am I even doing right now? Anyway, um, yes, let's let's try to get this done as quickly as possible. Somewhere lurks the Phantom. Uh, have you the nerve to read this great Stanley story? Should we preserve these thrilling Don Heck drawings? Dare we observe this unique Dick Ayers inking? Do we deserve the impact of the Sam Rosen lettering? So the letterer actually getting some credit in this one. So we've once again got, you know, everyone thinks that everyone still thinks Tony is dead at this point, right? Oh, yeah. They all still think he's dead. So uh, then, you know, Iron Man is supposedly running the company, as of course he always has been. But he is then putting some other stuff into his chest device because the whole reason he'd said, I have to be Iron Man forever now is because the chest device itself did not have enough power to keep his heart going at all times. So he needed those big power pods on his hips. Uh, But he's going ahead and making a modification to his armor so that supposedly just the chest part will uh, be able to keep him going. And this is a lot of panels on page three here. Panel seven, Tony Stark has some really slender, delicate hands. (laughs) (laughs) Um, now, I say that as a 50-year-old man who has the wrists and fingers of a an adolescent girl. So, you know, <laughs> who am I to talk? All right. So, anyway, he finds out that his experiment has worked and he finds it, well, I didn't die. So, this must be working. So, then he just goes ahead and turns back into Tony Stark and walks out of his office. And Pepper and Happy are like, what? I, you're dead. What's going on? And he's just like, oh, no, I'm not. Um I'm here. It's all good. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, I was running away with a girl and I'm now engaged to be married. So uh, Pepper, basically, you're not, you know, you you got nothing on me. Uh, You can go on and live your life. And this is supposed to be a big sacrificial gesture that he is sending her off this way. Because he senses she would be happier with Happy. Yes, of course, she of gets no say in uh who she's allowed to you know nope. to to end up with here. Uh so then uh oh and I I guess I skipped over a little bit earlier Iron Man and then later Tony Stark are like dodging this one guy who works in a department who's like oh I've got to have you look at these numbers like I'll 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 get to you later. So then we cut to the Phantom who is I mean this is just stuff that we've seen so many times before just like sabotaging his factories and you know what's going on and now in this case instead of the government getting on his case about this 
It's actually the union who is talking about this being an unsafe workplace. First confirmation we've ever had that there is a union. But no, the government is also getting after him. Someone said, we just have this, you know, this extremely lazy just montage of everybody complaining. And one of them is, if Stark can't stop these outrages, Congress will award our defense contracts to another company. So yes, yes. the most boilerplate wrote Iron Man story you could possibly have with the most generic villain. Yes. And uh, I will say that Tony does not seem to hate unions, which, you nope. know, I'll give him credit for that. Uh, he says, I don't blame them for their concern, but a strike would ruin me. So instead of, you know, trying to strong arm them into not striking, he's trying to solve the problem that uh, is causing them to want to strike in the first place, which I've got to say, I find to be quite noble in a uh, weapons making robber baron like this. You know, anyway, one way or the other, Iron Man finally tracks the guy down. And it turns out it was that guy who was trying to get his attention to pay attention to his department in the company. And he was just so desperate for attention that he turned into the Phantom and tried to blow stuff up. And it's like, okay, so you're like a five-year-old kid. Uh, I just, okay, why, whatever. Uh, And then we have him feeling all mopey at the end because even though he knows he made the right decision to go ahead and cut Pepper free, he just feels like he has no direction to what he's doing in the world. So, um, And that last panel is actually one of the worst-drawn Don Heck figures that I've ever seen. Look at how long Tony's torso and arm, his torso and left arm are. Compare the length of that left arm to the right arm, and (laughs) somebody stretched out an extra foot or two in the middle of his torso in there. It's a little bit weird. Anyway, that's it. I don't really, I mean, do you have anything you want to discuss on that, or should we just go ahead and leave well enough alone? Oh, dear God, no. Okay. So then uh, this is the point at which uh, Stan Lee and or Jack Kirby, but this really seems like it's probably more a Stan Lee decision, has decided that uh, he's not going to keep on trying to do modern day Captain America stories uh, going simultaneously with his appearances in The Avengers, not only for continuity reasons, as you've already brought up, but also, as we've discussed in previous months, because they don't seem to really know what to do with Captain America in the current day. No, they do not. And so this is a fascinating admission of defeat here where they're like, look, we just give up. We can't figure out how to tell stories about this guy. We know he works in World War II. And even though Sangley famously does not like kid sidekicks, they make a big deal here about how we're reintroducing Cap's sensational sidekick, Bucky Barnes. So we have from now on, you know, it's sort of a surprise at the end of this issue. They're like, oh, we're just going to flash back and tell his origin. Nope, psych suckers. This is it. We're staying here. We're stuck in World War II from now on for the next what, like 10 issues of this comic or something? It goes on for quite some time. Something like that. And, and, and it's great. I mean, they do great stuff with it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy with how they, uh, how they handle things. So um, we're just going to have a quick recap of Cap's origin here. We see the draft is on and anybody is going, is, you have to be basically on death's door to not be taken in on the draft. And we get some uh, indication of that here. There are, meanwhile, uh, saboteurs that are blowing up weapons factories. The thing that's really fascinating about this comic is it says in big type on the first page, 1941. So the fascinating thing about 1941 is America hadn't entered the war yet. And America entered the war at the very end of 1941 in December. And indeed, none of this comic is set in Europe. This is an entirely home front based book. So we begin with pre-America entering the war, presumably. This is not happening in the final weeks of 1941, presumably. And we see Nazi agents blowing up an American weapons factory. So, Steve, did you listen to Rachel Maddow's Ultra podcast? Yes. 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 So that's all about... It begins with Nazi Asians blowing up an American weapons factory in 1941 before we entered the war. So this is presumably based on that. Now, they do not get into all the stuff they get into in that podcast about all of the American Congress people who were on the side of the Nazis and were making sure that any attempt to put these people on trial failed and how basically it was, let's say, maybe similar to our current time when America's enemies had huge support in Congress. And it was a fascinating podcast. If you have not listened, go listen to it right now. But it is fascinating to read this comic, having just listened to that podcast and finding the picture of America in 1941 that was here. And I had no idea. I don't know if this is how it was in the comics. If Captain America was Captain America, someone who just operated out of America fighting 
the rare Nazi incursions into American soil. Like, I'm just shocked this whole issue does not take place in Europe in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure. But, you know, one thing with you pointing out, it was 1941, and we weren't in World War II yet. The first issue of Captain America back in, you know, was in 1941, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, wasn't ah. it? It was okay. It, it was considered actually quite controversial that they had Captain America literally punching a Hitler in the face on the cover when we were not at war with Germany yet. Ah, um, this was actually considered provocative. And that famous story that uh, we probably all heard about Jack Kirby getting a call from somebody from a, a payphone in the lobby of the of the Marvel offices you know, uh, when he was actually working in a studio rather than before, you know, now when he's working at home. But uh, there was there were some people, you know, from, I guess, the America First movement that was around at that time who the called bun. up and they're like, you know, hey, we saw what you were doing and, you know, how you were, you know, showing Captain America beating up Hitler. And we're just here to let you know that this is not OK and we're going to uh, we're going to we're going to beat you up. And uh, Jack Kirby then just basically gets up, puts on his jacket and starts going to the elevator <laughs> to go downstairs and uh, dispense with these guys. And they apparently had run away by the time they left. So who knows how true that is? OK, so getting back on what we're doing here, uh, we see the sabotage going on. We then see the super soldier project being pitched to FDR. We then get to, you know, the location that in the Captain America movie, uh, this place in Brooklyn where they are going to be running the actual experiment. We don't get all the stuff here that we got in the movie about how they tracked down their volunteer and figured out who was going to be Captain America. But we just go straight to, hey, here's where it's going to happen. So they've got this front, which is this sort of curio shop, which, you know, gives Kirby a great chance to draw all sorts of weird things that are, uh, you know, for sale. And this old crone is guarding the place, basically. So these uh, agents come in. They said, I believe you are expecting us. She says, I expect nobody as she pulls out a pistol. And then she uh, says, identify yourselves to my satisfaction or die. And so then they give the code word. And so then she takes them to the secret laboratory and she then peels off her face mask. And she is actually this beautiful young woman who, you know, this is just a, uh, a disguise that she is wearing. And it'd be great um, if this turned out to be Agent Carter, but Agent Carter is not to be seen in this issue. So this is the last we see of this. But she's a fascinating character. Has anybody ever gone back and done anything with the beautiful woman who dresses up like an old crone? And God, I'm, I'm glad you asked, because here's my one um, association with this. I have mentioned several times on this show that I am an avid player of the legendary uh, Marvel Comics themed deck building card game. And in the Captain America anniversary expansion that they did, one of the characters they had in there was Agent X-13. And one of her cards that you could play was basically an amalgam of the final panel on page two and the panel where she's taking off her, her mask. So okay. if that is to be believed, she is known as Agent X-13. She, at least in that context, I've seen her elsewhere. Okay. We then see skinny Steve Rogers brought in for this experiment. They give him an enormous test tube. <laughs> yes. I don't think test tubes are supposed to be that big. That should be a beaker or something like that. But, you know, he is just ridiculously skinny looking and he uh, he knocks back this thing. And you just see him transform into Captain America. Now, in later retellings, yeah. there's a whole separate part of the process involving something called Vita Rays, V-I-T-A Rays. And we do not have anything about that here. So Yeah, it's, um, just a, it's just a drink. You can just slam it down. One of the things I did not like about the Falcon and Winter Soldier show is that, you know, after having it been such a big deal to get the super soldier powers in the Captain America movie, they just, because the Falcon Winter Soldier show was sort of awkwardly plotted, they had to have at one point where U.S. agent just basically finds like a, like a, a little vial on the ground and quickly takes it and gets super soldier powers. And I'm like, what? This is just like essentially like a tab of acid now. This is something where <laughs> you can just spot it lying around on the ground and toss it down. And then suddenly you've got super soldier powers from then on. 
I, uh, I was, I was, I was offended at uh, how easily the U.S. agent got his powers in that TV show. So anyway, a Nazi spy comes in uh, with a gun that, when we see a close-up of it on the next page, I guess it's supposed to be a silencer on it, but it really just makes it look like kind of a science fiction gun, even though it presumably is just a gun. Gun kills the doctor that came up with the formula, and they had already talked about how you know security had been so tight that he had never shared anything with anybody and never written anything down. So now he's dead. And some of the Americans are saying, oh, we got to get you out of here. You're an important asset to you know, the United States. And he's like, no, this is what I was created for. This is my job. And he goes ahead and dispenses with the Nazi spy. And uh, of course, the Nazi spy ends up getting killed, but not by, Ameri- but not by Captain America's fault. Right. We then get a montage with a lot of newspaper headlines you know, Captain America captures spy ring. Saboteurs fail in factory plot with Captain America on scene. We just get more montage of uh, Captain America kicking ass, but all in America, as you pointed out, all against like Nazi spies in the U.S. Then we also get to see you see his secret identity as Steve Rogers. You know, basically think Clark Kent to Superman. You know, he's just this this uh, hapless really terrible soldier <laughs> that just can't do anything right. And they are in, you know, this domestic military camp. We then get uh, the introduction of Bucky Barnes a little bit. Uh, I've never really bought how he could be like kicking around with this group. But they do say here, you know, with this group, with this army unit, it does say when Bucky Barnes's GI father died in training, Fort Lehigh adopted the orphaned boy as camp mascot. Okay, so I guess he didn't, I guess he didn't have any other family. The dad died during training here, and so then they're like, well, at least we can do is raise his kid. Uh, okay, sure, why not? Okay, sure. Yeah, apparently it works the same way with cats and orphans, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, at, at least they have a bit of a fig leaf there. It just has never seemed like they made any, you know, attempt. Anyway. No explanation of if his civilian name that everybody knows him by is Bucky, and then his superhero name that everybody knows him by is Bucky, then how on earth does Cap still have a secret identity? Nobody knows. Once again, I think we've established that, you know, Spider-Man is the only character who puts any effort whatsoever into this whole secret identity thing. Bucky walks in on him changing into Captain America one day, and Cap says, if this was the Third Reich, I'd have to shoot you to keep my secret safe. But we don't do things that way. It's a deal, lad. From now on, it'll be Captain America and Bucky. But you'll need lots of training. And, you know, so then he goes in and trains. And even though he's not a super soldier, he, uh, you know, is basically a super soldier. So let's see. There's a big Nazi incursion from a sub that then the two of them, you know, very dramatically foil here in a, uh, a really nice sequence. Once Bucky and Captain America have tied up all of the Nazi spies that they've uh, that they've knocked out, they then take the raft full of explosives that they were going to use to blow up American factories. And they basically, I guess, light a fuse and then send it drifting back to the submarine. (laughs) And you see, boom, this giant explosion happens. So, you know, it's always one of those things where it's funny that they can't show them killing the Nazi spies that are here because heroes don't do that. But they send a whole load of explosives to a sub, which is presumably filled with more Nazis and that they can just blow up and, you know, submarines don't have a good track record for people surviving. <laughs> no. <laughs> this stuff. Um, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're Nazis and I don't care, but. <laughs> there was a, uh, there was a great Brian Cronin comic should be good uh, blog post many years ago about how like, you know, like we all know that they have this exception that Captain America was allowed to kill people in World War II. But did she know that there was one issue in which he killed one million Japanese? And <laughs> the Japanese had like dug a tunnel from Japan to America to attack America. And they had one million Japanese soldiers that they had sent through the tunnel. And then Captain America blows up the tunnel and collapses it. And it's like going, wow, we knew they made an exception for allowing him to kill people during World War II, but killing one million, of course, atrociously caricatured Japanese in one issue certainly set the record. Okay, so that's funny. You know, I've made mention of these rumors that I've heard of the thankfully unpublished manuscript to a novel that uh, that Jack Kirby wrote. I've mentioned this before. 
And supposedly it had a lot of Asian racism in the the basic plot. That actually sounds pretty similar to what I've heard described as some of the plot, but in there it was China. Okay. Interesting. I don't know whether Kirby was actually doing the book at that point when this storyline happened, but huh, I got to look up more about that. So then at the end of the story, it just says, and now the biggest surprise announcement of all. Each following issue of Suspense will feature a new adventure of Cap and Bucky based on their World War II exploits. You'll see them as they were in the past, fighting Nazis, spies, saboteurs, bringing the majesty of the golden age of comics into this, the new and mighty Marvel Age. They are very much announcing, okay, we are done trying to figure out how to tell stories with him in current day. We are going to go back to his glory days until we can figure out something else to do with him uh, outside of the Avengers. So, um, and a fantastic story. I mean, this uh, almost makes up for the uh, Iron Man issue. And, you know, it is fascinating to the degree to which this issue is very faithfully adapted in the first Captain America, the first adventure movie. And again, it's a great tribute to this issue that it is good enough that it was able to be ported in wholesale into a 2010 movie with very little changes. And this is just a beautiful issue. This is just wonderfully done. And yes, I mean, so all three Tales books at this point, Strange Tales, Tales of Suspense, Tales of Astonish, have great artists doing the back half of the book and terrible artists. Uh, well, Bob Powell wasn't terrible, but have, right. you know, grade Z artists doing the front half of the book and grade A artists doing the back half of the book. And why on earth is he doing that? Why on earth is he? Why would you begin with just an absolutely terrible John Heck Iron Man story? followed by this world-class Jack Kirby, Captain America story here. Why are we starting with Human Torch and then doing Doctor Strange in the back half of the book? Why are we starting with Giant Man and then doing the Dicko Hulk in the back half of the book? Endlessly confusing. These are all these are all wonderful questions, which uh, I would like to have answers to, but alas, we never will. We uh, never will. <laughs> so. Uh, so we did not mention the inking. Absolutely wonderful inking from yes. Frank Ray. Uh, Frank Giacoya or Giacoya, um, you know, really bringing, really making Kirby look like Golden Age Kirby. I think Giacoya is intentionally making Kirby look like his old self here, especially like the look on the old hag's face on page two and three uh, looks very much like a 1940s or 1950s Kirby story. And Ray gets a huge amount of the credit for how good this issue is. All right. Well, that was uh, a terrible Iron Man book, a fantastic Captain America book. Let's go ahead and go on to a similar dichotomy we're going to find in, but really both of these books are much problematic, Giant Man and The Incredible Hulk in Tales to Astonish. Another fabulous Marvel first introducing the new Giant Man. How many times have they <laughs> changed Giant Man's status quo or tried to revivify or reboot the character? Well, we got another child here says also see the Incredible Hulk on a rampage behind the Iron Curtain. So also a bit of a throwback to early Marvel. So we've got two throwbacks to early Marvel here. We then jump into the Giant Man story produced by Marvel's newest creative team, Stanley writer Bob Powell Illustrator. So this is Bob Powell again. And again, not doing a terrible job. Don Heck inking Bob Powell is not a good combination. <laughs> no, it is not ideal. Certainly Chick Stone did a better job in Human Torch, but it's not terrible. It's uh, this, this is not a terrible issue. Hank is creating a new helmet for no good reason. He's ever said this whole issue is just bizarre. He's He keeps sort of saying like, oh, I'm going to give myself new powers. I've created a new helmet. And he keeps not saying what he's going to do it, then we sort of just have to sort of figure out by process of elimination, like, oh, this thing he does accidentally, is that, did he mean to do that on purpose? Is that what he's trying to do with this new costume? Meanwhile, Jan is like, by the way, I always despised your old costume. Bite your tongue, Henry. The only good that outfit did you was it almost made your enemies laugh themselves to death. It's like, I didn't think that was such a bad outfit, but then she decides to sew him a new outfit. He, meanwhile, accidentally makes a cat grow big and cat attacks him. And then he actually makes a spider grow big and then the spider attacks him. As far as I can tell, the whole point of his new costume that he's trying to create, he wants to be able to like point at things and make them shrink and grow, which yes. they don't really do anything with. And they don't really, that doesn't become a major part of his character. It will later, much later in the late 80s, when Steve Englehart adds him to the West Coast Avengers book, that'll become his whole thing is that, and it is a big part of his thing in the Marvel Cinematic Universe is that he likes to throw little pods at things to make them shrink and grow. But so I guess that's sort of introduced here, but it doesn't become a major issue. Jan makes this new outfit, which I am not a fan of. Are you a fan oh, of this new outfit? Oh, no, no. I, I think it's I think it's trash. 
Um, I mean, you know, uh, not, you know, his previous costume also, I found a little bit confusing and, you know, not my favorite, but, uh, no, this one, I, you know, I had even forgotten that she had supposedly redesigned a new costume. I just thought I, you know, it's so, it's so nondescript that I didn't even notice that it wasn't just the old costume with this new ugly shoulder pad thing and strange little pointy helmet on top of it. Yeah, no, it's, it's trash. Yeah. So anyway, they eventually get the cat under control. They get the spider under control. And then he appreciates the new costume and they uh, are lovey-dovey with each other. And that is the end of the issue. Um, So it is once again, fiddling around with the status quo in this book in a way that doesn't need to happen, giving him a new costume that is in no way an improvement, giving him a new power he's never actually going to use. I love Jan's love of fashion. I love that character note of hers. But in this case, I disagree with her sartorial choices. So that is it for this issue. Do you have anything to add? The final panel in this story is just one that just really kind of jumps out at me. Jan says, never mind about that. How about taking your little wasp out dancing? And uh, Hank thinks to himself, looking back at us, breaking the fourth wall. So he, so who needs to be romantic? I'm doing fine the way I am. (laughs) You know, because she was, she was, you know, she's always uh, accusing him of not really being romantic with her. He's like, yeah, well, seems to be working, baby. (laughs) And I was also going to point out on page three that he's he's trying to explain what he's doing and is completely failing to explain it to us but then he is of course blaming jan for his failure to explain it to her and he says well let's see how i can explain it so that you can understand it so oh hank you suck you will always suck so uh just a couple more things that i uh observed about this issue at one point when she is insulting his existing costume she says, your costume is the most atrocious thing since Castro's beard. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then at one point when he's fighting the spider and he's changing size, Jan says, you're growing. Oh, thank heaven. I, I had forgotten how fast you can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I, I don't mean to brag, but women say that to me all the time. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then she's like, mm, boy, are you a sight for sore eyes? It's just... It's just so much fun to read this stuff out of context. Okay, so uh, that that's all I had for that. Let's move on to the much better Hulk story here. Much better, but still somewhat disappointing. This is The Incredible Hulk on the Rampage Against the Reds, written by Stan Lee, drawn by Steve Ditko, inked by Dick Ayers. So we get Ayers inking Ditko, um, which is a combination I don't think we've ever had, even though they've both been around for almost the whole life of Marvel Comics. And I think it's pretty I, good. I, I think I think that Ayers inked Ditko on his three-issue Iron Man run. Did he? All right. I, I'd have to go back and double-check, but that's my memory. Okay. Um, I think he does a pretty good job here. I think this is uh, yeah. this is nicely inked by Ayers. So then I find this just to be a very disappointing issue where we were in the middle of a really humdinger of a storyline where we had, you know, the, the Absorbitron was on this island and Talbot was locked up in a lab and then Banner was out and turned into the Hulk and was fighting the leader's humanoids and nuclear bomb was about to go off and it was all very exciting. And then suddenly... It's almost as if Steve Ditko has been going strong on this book and then Lee sort of helicopters in here and it's like, uh, okay, how about in the next issue, he gets kidnapped behind the Iron Curtain in the Soviet Union and you tell a story about that. And Steve Ditko's like, Stan, get with the program. I'm in the middle of a whole storyline here. I'm in the middle of a whole epic storyline where it's fighting the leader and they got the Observer trying and got the humanoids. And Stanley's like, yeah, 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 Gets wrap all that up. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, okay, so then they have to very quickly wrap up this whole epic storyline they were in the middle of very uh, inconclusively. And so suddenly the army floods onto the base. They start shelling Hulk fighting the humanoids. And then had, just so happens they were standing on a ledge and falls into the water and falls into a very quick eddy and gets shot. Um, I guess, you know, the Hulk starts swimming away knowing he's going to turn to Banner and really shoots through the water. And then just so happens, this just seems to be sheer coincidence, pops up out of the water next to a communist submarine, which is in U.S. waters. And they're like, oh, luckily, that is one of the most prized defectors we could possibly ever find. America's greatest weapon scientist has just popped out of the water next to this communist submarine. What, What tremendous good luck for us and what tremendous bad luck for him. So let's take him captive. And unfortunately, a... 
American craft is flying by the time and is able to just peer out the window and spot exactly what's going on. And they're like, that looks like Bruce Banner going down into a communist sub and heading back over to the Soviet Union. And Glenn Talbot is like, oh, okay, well, this is pretty clearly a case of Banner defecting to the Soviet Union. And indeed it is. Meanwhile, we just get briefly the leader going like, what happened? I thought this was my story. This whole thing seems to have been hijacked away from me. Uh, Okay, I guess I'll just, uh, I'll lurk for a little while longer. We then cut to, not in the Soviet Union, it says, within the borders of a captive European nation. So this is presumably like Poland or something. I don't know what this is. Some some nation that is unwillingly behind the Iron Curtain. Poland, and Romania, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, who knows? Bruce Banner just wants some food and they're like, oh, we're not going to feed you. We want you hungry. So you can we can force you to work on our science stuff and shows them around all these scientists that they have enslaved. That they are forcing to work there. And one of them says, another one they've captured and another one. When will it end? How much longer must we be first to work for this these heartless despots? We must revolt. Better death than slavery. And uh, tries to wreck the machinery, but is beaten up. So then they put Bruce Banner in a tiny little cell that looks truly horrific and claustrophobic. Uh, we've talked before about how I get claustrophobic reading about claustrophobic scenes, specifically involving Bruce Banner. And sure enough, <laughs> this is a very claustrophobic little panel on page seven. But then he turns into the Hulk and busts out. Now, this is a truly bizarre thing that happens. He is busting his way out of the prison. Nice fight scene where he's fighting their big weapons that they're using against him. So then, this is just bizarre. What is going on on page 10 of this comic? It's seemingly still within the grounds of the hospital. Sees the scientist who was rebelling before who suddenly says, you saved me. I broke free when you tore down the walls. You were magnificent and now I want to help you. And he says, here, let me give you some food and some drink. Like, will you just bust it out of a gulag, dude? Like, where do you suddenly have all this food and drink to give to the Hulk? Like, it seems like we're at his house now suddenly. How can he possibly offer any food and drink in this situation? It is truly bizarre. And then the Soviet Union now has a proton gun and some tanks that these two turreted tanks, which remind me of Star Blazers season two. I know you're a big Star Blazers fan. <laughs> yes. And then they send that after Marines. I find this to be a very disappointing issue that we were in the middle of this wonderful leader storyline that just suddenly gets abruptly abandoned so that we can seemingly take a trip back to 1962 or take a trip back to early Marvel comics when which the heroes were constantly being taken captive behind the Iron Curtain. And so, uh, you know, I, I wonder if, you know, the at the very end of page 10 there, it says, don't even try to guess what happens next. Stan and Steve have too many startling surprises in store for you. Uh, and so I wonder if that's just like Stan may have been like, um, Steve, weren't we doing this other, you just gave me these pages that this has nothing to do with, uh, okay, um, hey guys, guess what? You're never going to guess what's coming next, because I have no idea what's coming next. <laughs> I don't know, just, just, uh, just a, a, a concept there, who knows? Yeah, for some reason, I assume that the change in direction was at Stan's insistence rather than Steve's, but who knows? It is impossible to tell with all the mixed up uh, he said, he said, stories we have about the early days of Marvel. But somehow, one or the other of them seems to be, seems to have jerked the other one in the opposite direction with this story. It's a perfectly fine story. It's a fun enough story about being stuck behind the Iron Curtain and rebelling and having a big fight. It's a perfectly fine story, if only I hadn't been enjoying the previous story, which gets so quickly abandoned so much more. Yes. Okay, so we've got two more to go here. X-Men is mine. And uh, as you mentioned, this is a pretty momentous issue of X-Men here. Uh, On the cover, it says that we are introducing Kazar, Lord of the Jungle. Now, I I looked this up at one point, and apparently there was a Golden Age character named Kazar. Originally a pulp character in Martin Goodman's Pulps, who was not Kevin Punter. He he had a different alter ego. And he was not in Savage Land. He was in in Africa. Yes. And then they went ahead and moved him over to the comics. So he moved from Goodman's Pulps to Goodman's Comics and had been a backup in various Golden Age Marvel comics. And then here he gets ported over to Modern Day, but this is considered to be a different character because this character has, there are key differences in this character. He has, you know, he lives in Savage Land. He's got a different name and he, but Kazar, and I think Zabu, I think Zabu, the Saber Kazar, Sabertooth Tiger, was also an old character. Here, this is considered to be the first appearance of the Silver Age Kazar. So this is going to be our very first introduction to the Savage Land, which is going to be a very important geographical location in Marvel Comics for decades to come. 
and uh, specifically for the X-Men. The X-Men keep on uh, returning here and having stories that take place here over the years in, uh, in many different interesting ways. Now, the splash page that we've got, I've mentioned before about how sometimes Kirby's, especially his splash pages and his covers, seem to have some stuff in common with medieval art iconography in that the relative sizes of the characters has nothing to do with actual perspective and only has to do with what the relative importance of those characters is in the scene being depicted. So <laughs> in this case, you have what looks like a a, a little miniature shrunk down Cyclops and Marvel Girl <laughs> in the yes. foreground with Kazar and Zabu huge in the middle there. Now it specifically says... The coming of Kazar, K-A-C-A-R, and then there's a little arrow pointing to it saying pronounced Kazar, K-A-Y-S-A-R. And as I say in my notes, also by calling them Kazar. <laughs> I'm not going to, it's it's even hard to distinguish between Kazar and Kazar. Well, I, uh, I, I, it's I called Kazar, I say Kazar. I think the whole point is that it's not Kazar. I'm guessing that probably in the Marvel offices or, you know, the timely offices or whatever, there might have been some confusion about that. And so he's like, OK, just to get this out of the way, it's pronounced Kazar. I have complained in the past that sometimes when uh, the students are doing their exercises in the danger room that, um, you know, Gene is given tasks that, while they do look genuinely difficult, seem specifically girly, right? Like, Hey, thread this yarn through these holes. Right? Yeah. You're a girl. You can do yarn. You can do yarn work, right? But here she is disassembling an entire like army rifle or some sort of uh, some sort of weapon. And it looks to me as though Kirby probably got an exploded diagram of an actual weapon from some magazine or something like that. And basically just copied that exploded diagram down here. Um, and it really does look quite impressive what Gene is doing, uh, disassembling and reassembling this uh, rifle. Yeah, it's really badass. Anyway, so in the danger room, they finally all realize like, hey, wait, where's Warren? Isn't he supposed to be here with the rest of us? And so then they go running down the hall to go find Warren. They find him in front of the TV. There's some news reports that are coming. They say it's a videotape broadcast of something that happened yesterday at Antarctica of a Tarzan-like man coming and bringing a lost uh, scientist or explorer or whatever back out of the snowy wastelands, dressed in nothing but a loincloth and boots, being followed by a saber-toothed tiger. So um, this has now made it out into the world. The X-Men are like, huh, what about that? And this guy is nearly naked and out on uh, out in Antarctica. Maybe this guy's a mutant. You know, how else could he be living out here? They go to Professor X and say, hey, we think this guy's a mutant. Let's go ahead and take care of this. Professor X is like, no, he's not a mutant. If he was a mutant, I got Cerebro. It would have told me, dude's definitely not a mutant. But you know what? You kids have been uh, looking to be able to do something with your powers for a while, so why don't you go down and check them out anyway? And they're like, yay! <laughs> Xavier's like, no, I'm not going. That's that's not that's not for me. You kids have fun. So they head down and they somehow have their big uh, Antarctic vehicle, head to the point where the videotape was taken, and they're heading off in the direction that they saw Kazar go in, and then they find this huge crevasse that they're not going to be able to do anything with them. Well, of course, they've got Iceman. He can do, he could just create an ice bridge across it for them. It's already cold enough. He doesn't have to do any work anyway. But as it turns out, they find that this is an entrance into the Savage Land. So here is my huge question for this issue. And indeed, for their next big appearance in the Thomas Adams storyline, it seems like in both this issue and in the Thomas Adams issues, that the Savage Land is entirely underground. Seems they are going weird, yeah. deep, deep down into a tunnel in the Earth. But now the Savage Land has a sun. So is this supposed to be a Peculiar-type situation or a Scartaris-type situation? Is this supposed to be something where there is a, you know, in both the Edgar Rice Burroughs Peculiar series of novels... And in later the DC Comics, Warlord Comics, you have a hole in the Earth, in the Arctic, and you go down into the hole, and then you find out that the Earth is hollow, and there is a concave world inside the Earth, 
um, that it's a jungle with dinosaurs and there is an internal sun instead of Earth having a core, Earth has a sun at its core and the Earth is hollow and has this whole concave jungle inside of it. That seems to be the case here. Like, no one ever remarks on it. No one ever says, like, hey, there's a sun inside the Earth. But they seem to be... Now, by the time we were kids and we were reading Marvel comics, the Savage Land was just like a valley in Antarctica. It was a warmed valley or series of valleys in Antarctica. It was clearly above ground. So, like, in reading those Thomas Adams comics, I read that before I read this comic, and at one point, they fall into another crevasse. They fall into a big gash in the earth in Argentina and end up in the Savage Land. And I'm like, wait, how can you fall down into a pit in Argentina and end up in a valley in Antarctica? And I didn't realize that, like, no, 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 this is all inside the earth. So I have, this is a huge source of disappointment to me. I have emailed back and forth with Brian Cronin about various things over the years, and he has helped me with some bits of Marvel history that I have wondered about. He is maybe our leading scholar on Marvel history. and But I have asked him three separate times to clear up, was the Savage Land ever supposed to be inside the Earth? Was there ever an internal sun? And when did it change? And he has just flatly ignored every time I have reached this question <laughs> with him. Brian Cronin, if you listen to this podcast, Brian Cronin, you've broken my heart. Three times I've asked you this question, three times you've ignored it. What on earth? And well, I'm Brian also Cronin, asking, if you listen to this podcast, then good God, please come on as a guest. <laughs> please come on as a guest. But, uh, you know, hey, Brian, I know you're a big Bob Dylan fan, Brian Cronin. I was also on the Bob Dylan Pod Dylan podcast. We've got a lot in common. Okay, so anyway, they, they start finding, like, they find a big boneyard with a lot of megafauna, uh, which seems to imply that there's not just dinosaurs here, but there are also, you know, woolly mammoths and stuff like that. Essentially, all sorts of giant prehistoric animals, whether from millions of years ago or billions of years ago, you know, all here at once. They are trying to fight back against some, what are the pteranodons or pterodactyls or whatever they are that are attacking Warren. Really gorgeous pictures of some of these prehistoric animals on page seven. There is what I'm assuming is an ankylosaurus. You've got other, you know, sort of a mammal megafauna that are in here. We at one point see, as opposed to just megafauna, we see some mini fauna. We see dog-sized prehistoric horses. Just all sorts of fun stuff they're, they're able to do with here. But then we see some primitive warriors, they call them, mounted on giant carnivorous birds. So how they know they're carnivorous, I don't know. But one way or the other, um, you don't have to be carnivorous to be dangerous. They look like giant cassowaries with or something like that. They've just got a little bit of blood dribbling from their lips that they can tell they've been they've been they've been chewing on something juicy. But uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Kirby Kirby just in heaven in this issue and getting to show dinosaurs flying around and taking the X Men, getting to show the tiny puppy sized horses getting to show dudes attacking on these giant things. And then especially when one of them pulls out a multi-arrow launcher, Kirby just loves that. And uh, they are shooting spears into the air in every direction. Those guys end up capturing Jean somehow. Was she knocked unconscious or something? And getting away into a swamp. And uh, Kazar is like, yeah, no, that's the that swamp means death. Uh, We're not going there. We got to figure out some other way of doing it. You know, they're like, is he talking with the tiger? (laughs) What's going on here? So then they finally get introduced formally to Kazar. And um, there is some, uh, you know, uh, miscommunications of various sorts about customs and whatnot. They, you know, of course, have what you always have in Marvel Comics, which is where when two characters and two heroic characters meet for the first time, they somehow, through some misunderstanding, end up fighting each other before they end up joining forces. We then see his, like, Tarzan cry or whatever. Yeah! And Zabu's going, roar! I should say that over the years, there's been, it's never consistent in Tarzan stories, whether he is very eloquent and well-spoken in some stories or very crudely spoken in other stories. And it will be the same with Kesaro going back and forth over the years. Here he talks like Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan. He is like, you know, 
meet Kazar. Then, in later stories, he'll be very well-spoken. Just like Tarzan, it will eventually turn out he is the son of an English lord. He will be Lord Kevin Plunder. Lord Plunder. So, uh, anyway, they now join forces. Syke says, Kazar, listen, you've got to help us. The savages captured our female partner. You must know where they've taken her. So, we then get just get some more fantastic scenes of Warren doing reconnaissance and seeing, you know, again, these these uh, giant prehistoric creatures, including both mammals and dinosaurs of various sorts. Uh, but then he is actually captured with a net by another group of the Swamp Men, the same people that we saw earlier. And he is taken in this net to this enclosure that has sort of a pyramid-looking thing in it. And it looks like they're probably going to be made sacrifices uh, to whatever their their gods are. <laughs> At one point, Warren is like, uh, Gene, why don't you just use your telekinetic powers to untie those ropes? She's like, I thought of that, but I can't. They're covered with pitch. They won't unravel. And it's like, you can do other things with your telekinesis, Gene. <laughs> like, you can start just pushing these people around. Hey, they're pushing you up a mountainside. You know what you could do? Knock them over with your telekinesis. <laughs> Set off a whole chain reaction, a whole avalanche of uh, people going back down the thing. But no, no, we don't do that. So and also, forcing- you could dismantle a rifle. Like, uh, right. I think if you could probably overcome some pitch. But anyway... Yeah, I, I mean, you could dismantle this whole temple. <laughs> Why not? Judge me by my size, do you? All right, so uh, they then are brought up to the top of this pyramid-like thing. It's got a flat top on it. And then a T-Rex comes out of a, you know, a, a trap door. And they're like, oh, no. Again, they have to find a reason why Jean can't do anything. And apparently she's just paralyzed in fear. You know, that's great. Now, uh, okay, so here's the thing. A little inside baseball uh, in terms of comic storytelling. On page 15, the top two panels. This is a really super weird decision for Kirby to make. On panel number one, Psyche, Beast, Iceman, Kazar, and Zabu are all running from left to right and jumping over a gap in whatever thing they're running on. And then in panel two, we see Iceman, Beast, and Psyche crossing that gap, but we see them from the other side going from right to left. This is breaking one of the like core rules of comic storytelling here. And, you know, I don't know quite what to make of it. It might just be that, you know, hey, Kirby's working really fast. Every now and then he's just like, uh, I guess I just missed that one. <laughs> you know? I don't know, but it really, it really jumped out at me. It's like, that is not something I would have expected from Kirby. Yeah, huge violation of basic storytelling. Yes. Anyway, they go and they're trying to attack this fort it is well defended, and they're like, oh my god, what have we gotten ourselves into here? Marvel Girl has kind of snapped out of it a little bit and uh, has started trying to bounce boulders off of the T-Rex, and apparently that's kind of not doing it. But then she eventually is able to knock him over to give her enough time to be able to unravel Warren's ropes, which, of course, if they weren't covered in pitch, then why wasn't she doing that earlier? But, you know, that's a question that shall not be asked or answered. Um, So then Warren picks her up and flies off with her. Again, he keeps on flying way too low because these these, uh, tribesmen keep on uh, like snatching him out of the air. It's like, dude, you could get some some height in here. So anyway, the rest of the X-Men make it to the top of the pyramid or whatever you would call it. Fantastic fight scenes with um, all the primitive people. So here is... My other big issue, I have, this is going to be a long podcast. I've got a lot of stuff to go into. Another whole huge tangent I want to go into here is I have a no prize to pick with the no prize book. We get to another no prize book panel here, and it always struck me as, does this actually belong in the no prize book? The second panel on page 17 shows the beast jumping out of people's way as they launch at him with spears, and he says, personally... I have always believed that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. Well, so in the no prize book, they reprint this panel and, and it's written as if Stanley is writing the book and they have Stan going, I've always had trouble with the X-Men. It seems gang, you don't know how many letters I got about this. It was supposed to say violence is the first refuge of the incompetent. Of course, by the time X-Men number 10 was lettered, it read, and then he prints it. It says, personally, I've always believed that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. 
Well, here's the thing is that both of those make sense. Those are both good insults. It is, yes, it is an insult to say, hey, you people are being violent with me. Violence is the first refuge of the incompetent. But it's equally as insulting to say that violence is the last refuge of the incompetent. And, you know, to say like, oh, you know, it's one thing to go like, oh, you incompetent people, the first thing you do is violence. It's another thing to say, oh, you incompetent people, after everything else fails, you just resort to violence. That's equally as insulting. And indeed, I looked it up. And this is the usual way this is phrased. This is a quote actually from Isaac Asimov. Violence is the last refuge of the incompetent is a quote from Asimov. Mm. And I was unable to find out when he said it, but presumably, I don't know if he just got it from an X-Men issue. He was certainly uh, active a fair amount after this, but this is a perfectly fine thing to say. I think that this did not belong in the Marvel No Prize book. I think you make some valid points. However, I do not think they're worth being made. (laughs) 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 So uh, moving along, uh, Kazar uh, is able to summon a stampede of mastodons uh, to go ahead and wreck the barricades of this fortress. Now, doesn't uh, Tarzan sometimes call in armies of elephants for various things? Or am yes, I thinking? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yes. Um, essentially, very thinly veiled Tarzan ripoff here. Right. More just fantastic fight scenes. On um, page 19, we see Kazar just heaving one of these tribesmen in just like the most dynamic pose you could possibly imagine. And Bobby is rolling a bunch of these guys up in an ice ball. And one way or the other, they go ahead and dispense with the tribesmen. Turns out that Hank at one point was actually hung up on a huge pole. (laughs) and He's still stuck there. Warren has to go get him. And in the end, Kazor basically says, hey, get out of here. You know, like, this is my world. You don't belong here. Go. Don't come back. So then the X-Men leave, and we don't really see how they get back, but um, they presumably do. And as soon as they leave to go out that crevasse, uh, Kazar has the Mastodons, you know, essentially create a landslide to cover that up so that supposedly no one would be able to get in there again. Really fun issue. Lots of great art, great fight scenes, great imaginative stuff. An introduction to the uh, Savage Land, which, you know, obviously is going to be a huge thing for, uh, as we said, both the X-Men and the Marvel Universe in general. So that's all I have to say. Do you have any uh, commentary on this issue before we go on to our final issue of the month? An absolutely amazing issue. I love this issue more than anything. Huge value added to the Marvel Universe, huge value added to the X-Men specifically. Uh, And of course, we should point out that Kazar will frequently get his own book, never for long. But uh, (laughs) Kazar will often have his own book over and over again. They try to give him his own book over the course of the next 60 years. Did you bring up recently something about like him having the most canceled book in Marvel history? I think that was someone on Facebook saying that. Okay. And they apparently actually referenced that when his 80s comic was canceled, that they actually acknowledged in there that he was now the most canceled character (laughs) in Marvel history. But let's go ahead and finish up with Avengers number 14, if an adventure can die. So the great thing about this issue is Kirby is back. Kirby is back, and he has brought a whole army of people with him because this is... A the biggest credit list of any Marvel comic we have read yet, I think. It is written by three people. The art is by three people. Plot and editing by Stan Lee. Script by Larry Lieber and Paul Lakin, L-A-I-K-E-N, whoever that is. Layouts by Jack Kirby, and presumably co-plotting by Jack Kirby. So really, we've got four writers. Pencils by Don Heck, over Kirby's layouts. Inking by Chick Stone. So we've got a massive six-person team, and then, of course, lettering by Sam Rosen. So we've got a seven-person team doing this issue. You would think it would be an unholy mess, but I don't think this issue is an unholy mess. I think that it kind of works. I will say that this splash page is an unholy mess. (laughs) Yes, Yes, it is. (laughs) This splash page is trash. That's just... You know, I don't know. I don't know why they ended up saying, hey, Jack Kirby, can you do layouts on this? And then it'll be carried on by Don Heck and then Chick Stone. But yeah, this page did not work. (laughs) Yes. We've got Chai Man sort of leaping over the camera here with his leg descending across the whole panel. It really doesn't work. So I should let's go and jump back to the cover, though. I think this cover, this Kirby cover is is weak. I think this Kirby cover 
does not make the issue look appealing. And it's hard to tell what they're even standing on. It's it's a weak cover where they're fighting in this underground city. When I search for Paul Lakin, it comes up with Larry Ivy. Larry Ivy was an American comics artist, writer, and collector who was active in comics fandom in the middle part of the 20th century, described by comics historian Bill Shelley as, quote, the closest thing to an authority on comics that was available in the 1950s. Okay. Huh. So he got put up to the big leagues here and they're like, hey, do you want to, Paul, we, we need your help. We need to, we've got, we've got. We've already got Stanley and Jack Kirby co-potting this issue, and then we've already got Larry Lieber helping script it. Now we need an additional additional scripting help for something has gone horribly wrong here in the bullpen. We don't know what. Then <laughs> we jump into this issue. So I should put out this issue is the second time this month, I would say maybe even the second time this week, when we have a underground city beneath yes. the arc. And uh, although they're unclear in this issue, whether it's underneath the Arctic or the Antarctic. No, 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 this one is the Arctic. They, they make it clear this one's the Arctic. Yeah, but I'm just like, dude, twice in one month? What's going yes. on? When we left off last issue, they had fought Count Defaria. Wasp been hit, been hit by a straight bullet. She is dying. Ant-Man decides, oh, she's dying. Or Giant-Man decides she's dying. I'm going to have to carry her as I desperately run across the city. I'm going to have to jostle her and carry her in my arms to the hospital. Not the best idea. It's Hank. But they get to the hospital. They send her doctor. Doctor's like, uh, not much I can do for her. She's probably going to die. There's only one doctor in the whole world who's good enough to cure her. And they say, that doctor is in Norway. And Thor's like, I can fly to Norway real quick and get the doctor. So he flies, gets the doctor. Doctor's like, uh, dude, you do not want me to do this job. And he's like, yes, I do. I'm going to grab you and force you to come back to America. Forces him to come back to America. And the doctor's like, no, I can't help her. I was trying to explain. And they're like, well, now you're going to have to explain. Why can't you help her? And then they grab the doctor and it turns out he is an alien in disguise. His skin mask rips off and he says, I told you to leave me alone, you fools. I'm not the real doctor. I'm not even from your planet. I'm from another galaxy. And then he dies due to no longer having the breathing apparatus that was part of his mask. And they're like, what are they doing? And there's a great panel on page five of just Hank the most, maybe the most despondent anyone has ever been in the Marvel Universe to this date, um, crumpled up on the floor, banging his fist on the floor, totally despondent about what's going on with Jan. Page three, panel three, uh, where Hank is saying, no, you incompetent fraud. You couldn't have read that x-ray right. She's going to live, I tell you. Wasp is not going to die. Say it. Say you can save her. And um, this was my daughter when she broke her leg. <laughs> This was her when we when we took her in for the x-ray. She was like, you know, really handling it well. You know, we were just giving her some ibuprofen. She was, you know, able to just like distract herself with some video games and stuff like that. And then we brought her in and she seemed unconcerned. And then they came back and they're like, yep, here's the x-ray. It's broken. And she freaked. And she was saying, no, no. And actually, at one point she yelled, they're fools. They're fools. <laughs> 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 so watching this i'm like oh yeah no this is totally my daughter right here. yes your daughter is giant man so then they're like okay everyone this alien has replaced this doctor we have to find the aliens who replace this doctor so you try to find the real doctor now let's just all go our separate ways and each do whatever we know how to do to find aliens and so then they each go and they each do their separate things none of it works and finally they determine like well okay we all completely failed. So what does that tell us? And they're going like, well, the aliens must be someplace where there are no ants. So therefore, they must be in either the Arctic or the Antarctic. That's, that suggests but two locales, the North and South Poles. We then see them flying over an icy landscape, and they decide to start digging in. Now, oh, I see. My Uru hammer is pointed to the north. It is there. We will find what we see. Okay. Heading north at full velocity. Okay, so here they are in the Arctic, presumably in Greenland or something. I don't know. And once again, they fall into a huge crevasse in the ice and find a whole city underneath the ice. And so they're attacked by pink aliens. These look like standard Larry Lieber aliens, actually. They do. <laughs> they find a nice, curvy, fantastical city underneath the ice. They're finding the aliens. Now, this is sort of an interesting story where it turns out that these aliens aren't doing anything wrong. That the aliens are were part of a, a race on another planet, lived in peace for many years, and then they were attacked 
by other aliens, these, you know, wizardy aliens from another planet. And then they decide to flee and they're like, well, we need to flee for our lives and let's go to Earth. But we don't want to mess up. You know, we don't want to cause any trouble for the people on Earth. We're just going to go to the most remote part of the planet and dig ourselves a little city underneath the ice and they'll never know we're here and it'll be fine. And then there's a doctor who is just exploring and they grab the doctor and say, okay, we need you to help us here in our city. But the doctor is like, that's fine. You know, I want to help you. I'm a doctor. I like helping people. And you can just send one of the aliens to go replace me and no one will ever know I'm gone. But he says, you know, I'm here of my own free will. He explains to the Avengers. So Giant Man says to the doctor, doctor, listen, there's a girl in America. She's dying. Only you can save her every second counts. We've traveled half around the world to find you. We can't fail now. You must come back with us immediately. So then while they're making the case to the doctor that we need you to come with us, then the other aliens who they're on the run with find them. And they're like, okay, well, I guess we don't need the doctor anymore because now we've got to go fight for our lives against these aliens. You can take the doctor and go. And the doctor's like, okay, I'll go with the Avengers. And then they're like, we're going to fight these aliens. And they're like, okay, I guess you guys aren't bad aliens at all. They're like, we'll even teleport you back so you can go save the wasp. And which they do. And the guy goes into surgery. And then we just cut back for our own purposes to see the two alien races. They leave the Earth. They abandon their city. They go to fight these other alien race. I'm reading this whole story and I'm like going, you know, this kind of feels like an Uatu story. This kind of feels like the old Uatu backups they used to have in Tales of Suspense. Sure enough, who should show up for the first time ever in the Avengers? But Uatu, the Watcher, the first time since he had his own series. And he's he sort of gives like a, you know, turns this whole thing. I guess Larry Lieber was always a fan of Uatu, and Larry Lieber is one of the four writers on this book. And <laughs> he is saying, they're gone. All that remains is a fleeting memory in the minds of the Avengers. Two alien races about to battle for survival with Earth as their battleground. It would have meant the end of mankind, but the human race has now been spared because of one dying girl. None but the Watcher can comprehend the workings of fate. Finally, we see the Doctor come out, and he has cured the Wasp. And that is the end of the issue. So this issue is a big old mess. Obviously, it's a huge mess. Something, Some huge thing went wrong uh, that caused them to have to apparently bring in a comics fan to be one of the four writers on this issue. And it's kind of a mess, but it's kind of a fun throwback. There were lots of comics this month that were throwbacks to the early Marvel Universe. And this is one of them with the aliens. Turned out to be entirely decent aliens. Just didn't realize they were hanging on. They just happened to kidnap the worst possible doctor because it was a doctor the Avengers needed. But uh, but even so, like they just are like, we're just going to fight our own battles now and it'll all be fine. And everything's just fine. Yep. We never find out who wins the fight, by the way. We never find out whether the good aliens I'm, or the evil I'm aliens. I'm sure that Roy Thomas or someone else later went back and told us who won that war and, you know, gave us some kind of follow-up, I'm guessing. Yes. But uh, so, yeah, actually that Paul Lakin, who apparently is Larry Ivy, he apparently co-created Thunder Agents. Really? With Wally Wood? That, that's what I would assume. But here on oh. his Wikipedia page says co-created the th- comic book Thunder Agents and wrote several stories for Marvel Comics and the horror magazines Creepy and Eerie. Okay. All right. Oh. We've, All right. we've got fascinating. We, how many times have we had to go to Wikipedia for these two episodes <laughs> because of new co-creators they're bringing in? Things, it was yeah. a wild and woolly month in the Marvel bullpen, as if the Marvel bullpen really existed. In the world of Stan Lee's subcontractors, it was a wild and woolly month. Yes. A couple of things I want to point out. Well, first of all, with this thing being artistically such a weird thing going on, you know, as you said, obviously something went horribly wrong and they were just throwing people at the problem. On page four, I want to know what if if what I'm seeing is there with what you're seeing on the first panel on page four, uh, where Thor is flying over the plane and there is a text balloon. <laughs> yeah, what the hell is going on there? Yeah, that looks like something should have had a paste up to to fix something, or they were going to come back with some whiteout and do something, but they just didn't get around to it. There, so for folks who aren't watching this with us, there are two separate tails to this one uh, word balloon, both of which are pointing generally in the same direction into the plane, saying, you know, somebody in the plane is saying, you're imagining things, Henry. Now get away from that window. Uh, also, with you know things clearly being in a huge hurry and being somewhat sloppy, on the first panel of page nine, you can see where whoever's job it was at this point to erase the pencils off the page after it was inked. 
did not remember to erase the pencil from Hank's upper left arm right there where his uh, tricep connecting to his chest. You can see that dottiness. That is pencil lead that was left on the page when it was then photostatted for black and white reproduction. Yeah. You know, just these these various artifacts of uh, <laughs> this this crazy stuff that was going on. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is this is a really weird issue. I mean, you had this whole thing set up like, oh, we must, you know, the 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 wasp is about to die. And so we've got to save her. So then we're going to have this whole adventure with invading aliens who turn out to actually be good. And we've got to do this. And they didn't actually kidnap the guy. And we're in we're in the Arctic and all this sort of stuff. And just sort of like, wait, isn't Jan like, weren't we? (laughs) It's a weird, weird, weird issue. It is truly strange. And uh, it's nice to have Kirby back on the book for one issue only, but clearly a mess. And of course, they're about to give up on this whole team in just a couple issues. Very few issues, I guess. Is it two, Is it in six, issue 16 or 17? It's we're almost we've almost reached the end of Avengers phase one here. We're about to um, get Cap's kooky quartet. All right, everyone. We have recorded eight issues tonight. We are splitting it into two episodes. You have just heard us do the final four issues of this month. It has been a wild month. There's been a lot of good comics. There have been some bad comics. I would say, obviously, the two big standout issues this month are the Doctor Strange story, which begins the big epic, and the Kazar X-Men story, which is so much fun. Yeah, I I, I will, um, I concur. All right. All right. Thank you, everybody out there in podcast land, and we look forward to being with you again in presumably a couple of weeks. Thank you. Stay safe out there. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.